everyone. You're very welcome to another edition of the Shared Ireland podcast. Today, we will be having a conversation with Susan McKay. Susan is an author who has published a number of books, including Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, Bear in mind these dead and her new book, Northern Protestants, on shifting ground. Susan has also written for a number of newspapers, including the Irish Times, the Guardian and the New York Times. Uh, A key part of shared Ireland's goal is to ensure that the vast perspectives of opinion on this island are heard. And for that reason, we're delighted to welcome Susan to this episode of Shared Ireland. Susan, uh, it's great to have you here with us this evening. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. So to start off, can you tell us about your early years? So what was it about studying society and social groups and politics that interested you? And how did this lead to you uh, writing your critically acclaimed book, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People? Um, well, I suppose I, I was born into a Protestant family in Derry in the um late 1950s so I kind of came of age with the troubles you know I was just starting to go to secondary school when everything just went off the rails in in Derry Um, so I saw at first hand what can happen when a society just falls into violent conflict and uh, therefore I would be one of the people who would be absolutely certain that there is no way that anybody should ever contemplate threaten or warn about um, the the prospect of of any recourse to violence in the future. I think that Northern Ireland hasn't even recovered from the troubles yet in in any way. And um, the notion that anybody would think that it's um, justifiable to say that in some circumstances groups might take up violence again is is just completely anathema to me. Um, So anyway, I I went to school in Derry, uh, quickly became sort of interested in um, Irish music. Um, My dad would have given me the books of Seamus Heaney, uh, poetry of Seamus Heaney, and, you know, I would have been, by the time I was a teenager, I was going to the bars in the more Republican parts of town to listen to to Irish music. I wasn't so drawn by um, the music of uh, the Orange Order, for example. Um, So I just became more and more interested and more and more drawn towards um, Irish culture, I suppose. And I grew up in Derry, which is a border town. So, you know, we would have been going across the border to Donegal, uh, both for holidays, days out, um, gigs in Letterkenny. You know, I'd have seen Planksty and Christy Moore and all of those people and just uh, gradually formed the opinion that I wanted to go to university in Dublin. So I did that. I got a scholarship to go to Trinity in Dublin and I left sort of thinking that I would never come back, you know, just horrified by what was happening in the North. But by I left in 1975 and by 1981, I've kind of felt myself drawn back again, I think in a sense of feeling a need to find my own place in relation to Northern Ireland and I think a lot of people have discovered that a lot of politically minded people um, or culturally minded people you know you 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 think you can just walk away from a place but when the place is in consternation and in conflict it's it's hard not to feel that you've some responsibility towards it so um, I came back uh, to Belfast 
um, soon realised that I didn't fit in with any of the political parties that were there and instead got involved in um, feminist activism and I was one of a group of women who set up the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre in the early 1980s and I then worked there for um, a couple of years, um, some of the time as a full-time worker, some of the time as a volunteer. We would have relied upon scheme work at that stage, you know, where you could only work a certain amount of weeks before you had to um, go back on the dole again. So um, that was immensely rewarding. And from then on, I just was very engaged with Northern Ireland politics and society. And um, I decided to become a journalist then in the late 1980s and worked initially in the Irish press, then was taken on by Vincent Brown in the Sunday Tribune and was soon working on Northern issues and have continued to work on Northern issues as a journalist and a writer ever since. Okay, that's excellent. So when you think back um, to Northern Protestants and unsettled people, and you mentioned there about how uh, still at that time, just after the Good Friday Agreement, there was still an element of you know, consternation, still not a great amount of stability. What were the challenges in writing that book? So were you met with resistance from people who were maybe questioning why you were talking to them or why you wanted to write that book? Um. No, I, I surprisingly was met with very little resistance. I, I feel that part of that was because I wasn't uh, very well known as a journalist at that stage and I was a young woman. And as a result, I think a lot of, of um, the more traditionalist, patriarchal type men didn't take me very seriously. And so therefore they gave me interviews in which, because people used to say to me, how, how come those men were so open and frank with you? And I really do think that there was an element of it with some of them that they just didn't think I would understand anyway. So they, they could be, they could speak freely. But um, a lot of, I think a lot of, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I felt that there wasn't enough understanding, especially in the Republic where I was living at the time, of the diversity um, within Northern Protestantism. I think uh, at that stage, most people would have, if they thought of Northern Protestants, would have immediately thought of Paisley. And uh, that wasn't, for many people, a very positive sort of version of what the Northern Protestant was like. And I knew from my own family and friends and uh, circles of people that I'd, I'd moved in, in Belfast and Derry and elsewhere in the North that there was far more to life in the North and there was far more to the Protestant community. So I set out to do a, a sort of portrait that would show that, that um, the politics was diverse and that there were many, many people contributing to society in the North, in the in the Protestant community. Um, I did find um, that a more sort of militant, nationalistic type of unionist um, would be a bit suspicious, you know, why was a journalist working for a southern paper wanting to talk to northern Protestants? And one minister said to me, um, he said, is it for to blacken the name of Protestantism? And uh, it wasn't, and it didn't. And I think that it actually opened up um, a lot of people's understanding of uh, what unionism and Protestantism were about in the North. But 1998 was a an inter very interesting time, obviously, to be to be writing the book. It was the 
a lot of uh, I spent a lot of time say talking to people who were making up their minds or trying to get other people to make up their minds in relation to the Good Friday Agreement and uh, you know the, the the period of the referendum for the Good Friday Agreement and obviously there was a lot of, of debate very urgent debate within unionism at that time about that so when it came to 21 years on um, it was a very different time. We did 20 years of the Good Friday Agreement. We'd had the Stormont, Stormont Executive, which had been running in a sort of stop-start way over that 20 years and had most recently, when I started writing this book in 2019, um, the Executive uh, was collapsed and had been so for almost three years. So there had been no local government. Meanwhile, we'd had Brexit with the DUP having unprecedented power and influence at Westminster. And we also had the fact that we were entering into the centenary of Northern Ireland, which is not this year, 2021. And we also had the fact that there's a census uh, due, which is probably going to show you know, that the Catholic community has potentially become uh, the bigger community in Northern Ireland as it is. It's only among the over 60s that Protestants have a significant majority and among school children um, the, the majority is Catholic. So the North is transforming in many ways and then of course in the course of, of writing the book you know amazing things started to happen like um, the DUP appeared to implode um, they ousted their leader. They, they've had bitter, bitter battles um, in the public eye, which is unheard of in the DUP. The Ulster Unionist Party also, in a gentler way, ditched their, their leader and have taken on somebody who appears to be determined to take the party in quite a different direction. But I also felt uh, on starting into Northern Protestants on shifting ground that I wanted to show the change that's happening outside of political unionism as well, because these aren't primarily political books. They're books about a community or communities, uh, people within different communities, because not all Protestants belong to the same community. So um, I've really put to the fore people who wouldn't normally be asked for their opinions. So there are a lot of women. Um, I found no difficulty in finding women. I find it astonishing that so many writers and journalists constantly seem to and people organizing events put up manels and, and select a lot of men to comment with maybe one or two token women throw thrown in so i've got lots of interesting women in there and i've got lots of people from the lgbtq community and i've got lots of people who are involved in climate movements and and, and um you know who are politically active but not necessarily in political parties or who are active in non-unionist political parties. I think that there's a huge phenomenon now of um, pro-union, non-unionists in the North. And uh, many of the young Protestants who don't vote would fall into that category. Um, they would be, on the whole, liberal people who will not vote for a party on principle that is anti-LGBTQ and which is anti-abortion and women's right to choose. So the DUP in choosing to be extremely traditionalist and conservative on those social issues is automatically ruling out the, particip the participation of those people in their kind of politics. 
That's excellent. So there's been a lot of different topics uh, raised, which I think we'll get into uh, as we move on. Uh, so just uh, on that diversity that you mentioned earlier in terms of how uh, in your uh, first book, uh, An Unsettled People, you try to show the diversity, particularly, I suppose, to a Southern audience. Uh, I suppose, bring it up to today. How well do you think that diversity uh, is shown, as you mentioned there, within politics, but also in the representation of Northern Protestants uh, within the media, for example? Um, I think that there's still there's still a prejudice against the North in in the media in the Republic. I mean, uh, and in the the United Kingdom as well. Uh, I've had this conversation with uh, journalists in. Um, British papers as well, who will sort of say, you know, the same as my own experience, you bring a Northern Irish story to an editor and they'll roll their eyes for the most part, you know, and there was one one editor, one news editor in Dublin, uh, I had what I thought, thought and still think was a very good story, which I did ultimately write for the paper, but his attitude when I mentioned it to him was, I said, I think I would need a bit more space for it than, than you're suggesting, and he said, look, it's a Wednesday and it's a Northern story <laughs> you know, as if I was supposed to understand from that that on only on certain days of the week could you have a northern story that was over a certain amount of words okay. you know but I find it both gratifying and very interesting the fact that my new book which is only out a few weeks went straight into Hodges Figgis bestsellers list in Dublin at number two and, and it's still there. I think it's dropped to number three this week, but that's Sinead O'Connor's fault. Why did she have <laughs> to bring her book out when she did? <laughs> she would be number one for years. Yeah, you go. <laughs> deservedly so, deservedly so. I'm a fan. Wow. But um, yeah, so I mean, that gives the lie to the notion that people here are not interested in um, the North and in, in books that are about a deeper look at Northern society. So I think that's really good because... If we are to have conversations about potentially um, changing the constitutional status of the North and potentially talking about a border poll, which could result in some form of, of Irish unity, um, that isn't just a thing for Northern Protestants and, and Northern Nationalists and Republicans to think about. It. It's also something that people in the Republic are going to have to think about much more seriously and in much more depth. You know, I think that people tend to sort of, there is a very partitionist mentality in the Republic still, I think, except in people on the border area, which is actually a, a big swathe of the country, if you actually look at it, you know, if you take the border counties, north and south, into account, it's a big part of the country. But outside of that, I think, you know, in, in Dublin, Cork, Galway, um, and the and the, the further south regions, there is a kind of an attitude that is up there, you know, it's up there, it's not our business, let them get on with it. And there's the sort of rolling of the eyes when you talk about, say, what's going on in unionist politics. And there's a sense that it's not their business, but it bloody well is, you know. And <laughs> and uh, they have to take the North seriously. It's You know, I, it used to astonish me when I was working in the Republic, uh, working in the North, but living in the Republic during the days when people were still being killed on a regular basis in the north and you know you'd you'd come home from some absolutely horrific incident that had happened in the north and people down here weren't even talking about it you know it hadn't registered and I think that that 
means that there's a big disconnect in people's minds that in the Republic, you know, there, of course there are exceptions to that, but an awful lot of people just don't seem to realise that these things were happening just up the road from them. And and it's so important that we absolutely make sure that nothing like that ever happens again in any part of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose just on that, as you mentioned, the partitionist mindset, do you think, I suppose for obvious reasons, has Brexit started to change how, I suppose, politicians, particularly in the South, uh, interact with what happens in the North? Um, I think Brexit has been profoundly damaging. Um, I think that it has really unsettled people. It has um, it has brought the whole border issue up like a sort of itchy scar uh, in a way that, that that was completely uncalled for. Um, it has caused enormous amounts of division. Uh, there's now the whole business of the border in the Irish Sea. So Northern Ireland now has two borders. It has its economic border in the Irish Sea and it's got the um, border across the country. And the whole notion of the Good Friday Agreement was supposed to be that all of that was kind of softened uh, so that normal relationships could develop between North, South, East and West. And, you know, you had the fact that people in people in the North could have their own aspirations. They could they could aspire to be part of United Ireland. They could aspire to continue to be part of the United Kingdom. They could be British or they could be Irish. And increasingly, people are defining themselves as Northern Irish rather than either of those things. Um, and there are so many people in the North now for whom the constitutional issue isn't the key issue. You know, um, particularly, I think, among young people who who think more in terms of international uh, movements and issues. But, yeah, Brexit has been very, very um, disturbing in its impacts um, and it's caused a great deal of confrontational kind of language to be used again um, in a way which I think is very, very unhelpful uh, to the project of reconciliation within the North. So um, I think that the protocol debate now is sort of acting as, as a, a siphon for a lot of the anger and, and disquiet that there is among sections of political unionism. But I think it also has to be acknowledged and isn't acknowledged that a lot of the time when people talk about wanting to get rid of the protocol, those people actually mean they want to get rid of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, that is not true of everybody, of course. You know, there there are business people who um, have attitudes towards the protocol which are entirely based on their need to get on with their, their work of running their business. But there are some people who politically talk about the protocol when really they mean the Good Friday Agreement. They're frightened of the idea that the Good Friday Agreement is going to lead them to a situation where we could well have a Sinn Féin first minister next time uh, there's an election and uh, we could well have a move towards a border poll, which is also something which was envisaged in the Good Friday Agreement. So you have to look at what people are actually talking about. Um, for example, I went to an anti-protocol uh, rally in Portadown recently because I just had my doubts about some of the narrative that was going about that, you know, there was this, you know, army in waiting of angry young people who were willing to get involved in, in uh, paramilitarism and, and um, 
activism of that kind uh, in order to defeat the protocol. And what I discovered when I went to Portadown just a couple of Saturdays ago was um, a lot of old boils that I had known when I used to attend the, the Drum Cree protests, you know, and I'm sure they were looking at me and thinking, God, she's aged, you know, and I, I was looking at them thinking the same, you know, but they were people that I recognised who had been at Drum Cree in 1997, 1998, 1999, and at that time they were there trying to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement wasn't implemented. They failed in that, and there were a lot more of them then, and there were a lot more young people involved then. Um, the people who were at that demo in Portadown were largely not young people. I asked some of those there who were talking to me about, you know, how there was potentially going to be violence again. And I said to them, look, I don't see these angry young people who are going to take up violence. And they said that they would arrange for me to meet some of these people, but it hasn't happened. And I think it hasn't happened because they aren't there. I think it's like a ghost army that they're talking about. You know, um, I think that the majority of young people in Northern Ireland are preoccupied with um, trying to live their lives in a very, very difficult economy um, for the young and for young working class people in particular. Um and that's what's on their minds. And I think that a lot of young people are getting dragged into paramilitary organisations, both Republican and Loyalist, um, by kind of gangsterish elements. Um, and I think that the Loyalists who are talking about violence at the moment are the equivalent of the kind of dissident Republicans who um, succeeded in getting a riot going that, that resulted in the murder of poor Lyra McKee in 2019. And I think that that kind of um, low level violence can be very, very dangerous, even though it doesn't actually represent um, the, the will of very many people. Okay, so I suppose just as you mentioned there, the tragic event of the death of Lyra McKee, do you think that politicians, not politicians, but journalists who interact with, as you mentioned there, with paramilitaries or groups similar to that, like distant Republicans, have there been times in your life when you've sensed, felt a sense of fear about the work you were doing? And do you think that that is still true even to today, that journalists, that they still have to face difficult positions that can put them in very threatening positions? I think that there are a lot of, there is a lot of threat towards journalists working in the North at the moment. Um, if you look at someone like Trish Devlin, who works for the Sunday World, you know, has had horrendous threats made towards her and, and her young child. Um, the NUJ has been very um, militant in its support for uh, journalists working in these circumstances. But again, if you look at what happened to Nicholas Watt of the BBC the other day in London, you know, there's there's a lot of um, almost, you know, the, the Trump-like behaviour of some of the crowds that are gathering now in Ireland, North and South, um, is disturbing for journalists because, because those people do not respect the media. I think it's very irresponsible of politicians to send out messages that the media is not to be trusted, that, that the media is going to tell lies about you, because that, that sort of gives people a sense that they have permission to be hostile to um, journalists. Um, loyalists in particular have always 
taken the view that the media doesn't tell the truth about them, that it that it lies, it never give it never says what they say. But as someone who has over many years constantly sought out the opinions of loyalists, I just don't accept that. But what I do see is that a lot of um, loyalists simply want to talk to journalists, you know, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But um, one of the most irresponsible things that I feel is going on at the moment in the media is the hyping up of this Loyalist Communities Council, the LCC, you know, their spokespersons are constantly being asked for their views on what's happening at the moment. Who do they represent? They don't represent the Loyalist communities that I know. They don't represent the women who have been running community centres in Loyalist working class areas you know, since as long as I can remember going right back into the 1980s and before, that just happens to be when I got involved in activism in the North. So, you know, there's, these people have put themselves forward. It appears to have suited the DUP to cultivate a strong relationship with these people for whatever reason. But I really think it's regrettable when you see the likes of BBC Northern Ireland um, having spokespersons for the LCC, which includes within its number um, loyalist paramilitary organisations, you know, having them on mainstream programmes when they don't have other people uh, from those communities on those programmes and when they don't have alternative voices. Um, I don't understand why the DUP says loyalists have nobody to represent them. Surely it's the role of unionist parties to represent people living in uh, disadvantaged areas. They haven't done a very good job of it, but it is their role and responsibility. Lots and lots of people vote DUP who have seen very little advantage from it other than the fact that they wish to remain within the United Kingdom and they vote DUP because it's the biggest unionist party and it's not Sinn Féin but that's not you know voting for a party simply because it isn't another party and voting for it simply because it maintains the union even if the union isn't actually delivering for you isn't very satisfactory politics. Yeah so I suppose just as you mentioned there in terms of almost what is the benefit from the union and going back to a previous question, do you have any confidence that that cycle of deprivation that is being faced in a lot of communities, both nationalist and unionist, when you look, I think was it yesterday, there was reports on the presence of loan sharks uh, within many communities. Do you have any confidence that politicians from any persuasion can help to break that cycle of deprivation or is it a case of, as you've mentioned there, that they will, politicians will try to keep communities angry, but for their own benefit, essentially. Um, I think one of the very interesting things that's happening in terms of the whole island at the moment is that, you. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the things that people said to me quite a bit was, you know, we used to think of the South as being a Catholic state for Catholics, very dominated by the Catholic Church, uh, a very authoritarian Catholic state and um, now people look across the border and they see that the um, Eighth Amendment was repealed and there's same-sex marriage in the Republic and uh, so therefore people have some civil rights that they don't have in the North. But what's also important to note is that people are are recognising that that was achieved through social movements, through progressive social movements. It wasn't achieved by the politicians in the Republic. So people are 
seeing that community activism can actually be a very effective um, transformational tool. And, you know, if you look, say, to give an example, someone like Linda Irvine in East Belfast, who is running an incredibly successful Irish language um, movement there, and that is giving a lot of confidence and hope to people living in a community that has been very disadvantaged for many years. And it's not confrontational and it's not about the constitutional issue, but it is working for people. And it's taking the poison away from the notion that the Irish language is solely for the others. You know, it's, it, you know, I've been to talks that Linda Irvine has given where she's talked about the way that it was, you know, radical Presbyterians who saved the Irish language at certain stages in its history when it was suffering from neglect. You know, and she talks about the way that a lot of little towns and villages that are, are very militantly loyalist have names that whose, whose names come from the Irish, you know, and how enriching it is for people to know uh, the language that's hidden within their place names and so on. So there's all kinds of ways that people are trying to transform Northern Ireland. There's a very strong green movement in the North and it's it's both local and that there's a Green Party which is very ably led and there's also um, all kinds of international green movements that people are involved in. Um, so politics is changing in the North in ways that you wouldn't notice if you only paid attention to the political parties within unionism. Okay, that's great. And I suppose there is, of course, that famous phrase, never judge a book by its cover. But when you look at the cover of your book, it's very striking and very visual with the presence of the effigy of the Lundy. I suppose just going back to, as you mentioned there, the role of the media and how they can bring certain voices uh, to the limelight. Do you think that Lundy mentality is still in place? I mean, even from your own perspective, um, last week, speaking at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, uh, Claire Hanna used the phrase, a real-time attempt to lundify you, the comment made by Gregory Campbell. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that from your own perspective? So what were your thoughts when you heard um, Mr. Campbell uh, make those comments? And do you think, does that reflect a certain uh, element that kind of runs contrary as you mentioned there the growing green movement or you know internationalism within Northern Ireland that it's still that element of being left behind in some way well let me first of all explain Lundy to anybody listening who doesn't know about Lundy um, the the image that you refer to it's a photograph by the brilliant uh, dairy photographer Trevor McBride and it's of the effigy of Robert Lundy and it's a very it's a very I think it's a very beautiful enigmatic face but some people think it's very garish <laughs> uh, but I kind of liked it because I think it's quite quite sort of drag queen looking you know it, it reminded me of Rue Paul who was in um the uh, the drag race uh, TV program and just that sort of notion of a, a different sort of male face but also uh, it's deeper longer term meaning is that Robert Lundy was the governor of the city of Derry at the time of the Jacobite siege on the city in 1689 and uh, he did not feel that the city could withstand a prolonged siege so he wanted to negotiate a surrender and the apprentice boys 
of Derry decided that that was not going to happen. So they shut the gates against the Catholic army of King James. And that from that has developed this whole sort of model of Northern Ireland unionist politics, which is no surrender and fight before you fight before you yield. And these are not just historic notions. I mean, let's just look at Arlene Foster when she was obviously on the point of being ousted and obviously was feeling deeply uncomfortable and deeply threatened in her position within the Democratic Unionist Party. She said she was asked how unionism was going to manage to get the protocol done away with. And she said, well, I think the problem within unionism is that whenever we're in difficulty, we look for a Lundy. And, you know, I think that was evidence that she knew that she was becoming lundified, she was going to be blamed, she was going to be um, ousted, banished, whatever. You know, Lundy had to leave the city of Derry. After that, he fled apparently down a pear tree and made off. Um, and every year in Derry in December, the effigy of Lundy is burned and uh, it, it used to be a very fierce thing. It's now much less so because of really good work that's gone on between the Apprentice Boys organisation and the uh, Republican and nationalist communities in Derry. But anyway, Arlene Foster talked about, about uh, Lundy's, looking for Lundy's and also more recently, um, Edwin Poots in his inaugural speech as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party um, said, and bear in mind, people were looking at this man thinking, is he going to say something which is open-hearted? Is he going to say something which talks about the community, meaning the whole community? But no, he said, um, history tells us that when unionism's back is against the wall, it'll come out fighting. You know, and again, just it's this model of, you know, we will fight, we will be right, we will not bend, we will not yield, we will shut the gates, um, you know, we will not surrender. And it's just so not a suitable politics for the period that we're in, the 21st century, 21 years on from the Good Friday Agreement with its project of reconciliation. But so... After the first Northern Protestants book came out in 2000, there were various people who called me a Lundy, meaning that I was a traitor to my people. And they said that I had, you know, sold out to a nationalist narrative and, and various other things like that. But at the time, I suppose I was a bit stung, even though by that stage, I would have joked that I was a Lundy. And, and I, you know, would have been friends with various other people who had also been accused of being Lundies. But this time around, I found a cheerful set of people who are quite happy to be called Lundies. And, um, you know, what one person, uh, Claire Mitchell, who's another writer, um, she, and very interested in the 1798 rebellion, um, when Protestants and Catholics were, were united in, in that project. But um, Claire talked about, you know, uh, she told the story about um, how they'd had a workman into their house in, in Belfast and um, how he had uh, assumed that they must be Catholics. And as a result, he had referred to Derry. Uh, you know, he talked about being from Derry or something um, as a way of kind of showing them that he was open-minded and would talk about Derry if that was the way they wanted it. And her husband then managed to throw 
the word Londonderry into the conversation three or four times. And she talked about how she thought it was a lovely example of the kind of um, generous everyday negotiation of dis- difference that goes on but she referred to herself and her husband as being she said we're not Catholics we're Lundies you know we're in other words we're Protestants who do not subscribe to a particularly narrow exclusionist version of of um, Protestantism or unionism. Okay so as you mentioned there um, Arlene Foster uh, this week saw the end of her time as First Minister of Northern Ireland how would you assess her tenure uh, during her time in the role? Um, people are, are looking at Arlene Foster now and seeing this cheerful woman who laughs and sings at international um, gatherings and, you know, talks about sharing and uh, being good to your neighbours and so on. And they think, where was she? Where was she when she was, you know, ensuring trying doing her best to ensure that we wouldn't have a woman's right to choose in Northern Ireland despite British legislation to enable that um, where was she when same-sex marriage was um, being fought against by conservative churchmen you know where was she in terms of um, when she used the term rogues and renegades when she stood in as first minister for Peter Robinson and she referred to politicians from the Sinn Féin and the SDLP as potentially rogues and renegades who might get their hands on the finances. Um, you know, where was she when, when, where was that lovely woman when she referred to crocodiles? You know, the trouble is if you feed crocodiles, they just keep coming back for more. This was what she said in relation to the Irish Language uh, Act. You know, and where was she when members of her party said outrageously sectarian things um, and were simply mildly rebuked rather than being thrown out of the party, as, as you might have thought a decent leader would have done? You know, so unfortunately, I think her legacy is not a progressive one. Um, I think that she was liberal by comparison with Edwin Poots and Paul Given, but liberal in the DUP means you abstain in a vote to ban uh, gay conversion therapy uh, rather than utterly rejecting it, Um, you know, as the DUP did. I mean, clearly people should have been voting for a ban on conversion therapy if they, if they had any awareness of, of what a heinous practice it actually is. You know, so it doesn't take a lot to be called a liberal within the DUP and she was that by comparison with um, other members of her party. But sometimes it appeared that Arlene Foster was not really trusted by the men in her party. I often had the sense of her as a kind of a hostage of a group of men who were constantly sort of watching her every word and that she was trying to prove that she was as tough as them all the time. And there's an interview in the book with Claire Sugden, who's an independent unionist, and she was a justice minister for a period, a brief period, um, in the previous administration um, in the North. And she talks about how the women who succeed within politics in Northern Ireland are often women who are not particularly feminist. They tend to be women who, who 
demonstrate to men that they're willing to do things their way, you know, rather than looking at the point the, the point of view or the perspective of trying to get more women from a more diverse background into politics. You know, DUP women politicians have consistently sort of said, no, we would not have support, uh, for example, any kind of use of quotas to raise the number of women in politics. They say it has to be on merit. And they, they haven't obviously looked at the fact that merit has not worked for women. Um, it continues to deliver some very mediocre men while some very brilliant women uh, remain excluded. Okay, and I suppose thinking about three men who will probably be pretty important in the future. Uh, I suppose one issue that Edwin Poots might have, which Arlene Foster to some extent didn't, is a strong challenge both from Doug Beattie, who is trying to position the UUP as a more inclusive approach to the union. And then on the other side, you've got Jim Allister, who's presenting the argument that the DUP is almost giving too much to Sinn Féin. What impact do you think um, the fragmentation of unionism will have on the everyday politics of Northern Ireland, but then leading on to what the constitutional future may be? Um, yeah, I think that the the DUP is hemorrhaging voters to primarily at the moment the TUV and Alliance. Alliance is a huge threat to, well, I shouldn't use the word term, the term threat, because I think that that kind of militaristic language is, is one of the problems in the North at the moment. Alliance is challenging the DUP and uh, a lot of progressive young uh, pro-union people are going to Alliance. Alliance, for people in the Republic who don't know, used to be sort of known as the nice party and you used to get a lot of people who would pretend that they voted Alliance because they wanted people to think that they were far more moderate in their politics than they actually were. But under um, Naomi Long's leadership, Alliance has become... um, a very uh, rigorous party and, and a party that takes um, well thought out progressive positions on quite a lot of issues. So um, you're seeing young Protestant people going to Alliance, um, even though it isn't a unionist party. And indeed, they may not even be unionists. Um, they may not be pro-union. They may they may have all kinds of politics, but they, they're going to Alliance. TUV... Uh, um, Jim Allister, to me, is like the sort of ghost of Paisley past. He's kind of the unionist who is constantly alert for sellouts, who constantly feels that um, the you know that there is a threat to the union and people have to be militant and vigilant about that. But he is a pretty much a one man band. Uh, you know, he's he's a very able politician in many ways, but he hasn't succeeded in attracting large numbers of people. So it's hard to understand why Edwin Poots seems to be trying to retrieve that ground rather than trying to get some of the uh, young people who are not voting or who want a more liberal sort of um, political representation. Um, Doug Beattie um, is trying to uh, change the fortunes of the Austro Unionist Party, but it has been in free fall since it was eclipsed by the... um, uh, DUP not very long after the Good Friday Agreement so he's got a huge job to do and it remains to be seen whether he's going to be able to do it uh, quickly enough to make a difference because there is a growing movement um, towards um, a border poll and the notion that Northern Ireland would have been better to have remained in the EU 
and that uh, what is going on in the north at the moment is evidence that the executive up there just simply doesn't work. You know, there is a, there is a lot of evidence that it, it isn't it isn't succeeding in being stable and in representing the the whole community in an appropriate way, and even the fact that people are having to turn to uh, the Westminster government to get abortion legislation to try to get an Irish Language Act. You know, it doesn't speak of a functioning, uh, a fully functioning um, local uh, government. But Doug Beatty, I think, is going to have to, and this has been pointed out by others, he's going to have to let the Ulster Unionist Party get smaller before it can get bigger, which is a very difficult thing for a leader to do. So while he's signalling that he wants to be more liberal, there are a lot of very conservative um, people uh, who are elected representatives for the Ulster Unionist Party, and it remains to be seen what their attitude will be to the liberal direction that he's trying to take the party in. Okay, and I suppose, as you mentioned there, especially uh, with regards to the Alliance Party and the moderation, some might uh, make the point that that represents the target market almost within a border poll in terms of that is the group who could be swung either way, pro-unity or pro-union. When you're undertaking the interviews for your book, um, was there a broad range in terms of how people viewed the potential for a united Ireland? Was there some people who are very much of, they can be convinced, or were there others who would take the Arlene Foster line of, if there's a united Ireland, they'll leave Northern Ireland? Well, actually, a lot of people were very annoyed at Arlene Foster for saying that because she's in a position as a, as a probably a pretty well-off middle-class person to leave if she wants to. But an awful lot of people don't really feel that they've got that option, you know, that, and nor do they want to leave. You know, an awful lot of people who live in Northern Ireland are deeply attached to the place um, and they... They either don't have the option of leaving or don't want to leave. Their, their community is there. Their family is there. So it didn't play very well with people when she said that. And she said it twice now. Um, but um, I think that I was surprised by uh, the fact that quite a lot of people were you know, not horrified at the idea of a border poll. Uh, a lot of people would say, well, you know, we're going to vote to remain in the union and we want to remain in the union and we really need to be making a case for remaining in the union. We need to be entering into debates about this so that we can put the case for the union. Um, But there were some people, including some people in the DUP, who had a, you know, fairly um, open mind in relation to a border poll um, because they are democratic people and they they were saying, you know, well, if there's a border poll, I'll be voting to remain in the union. But if it comes to it, um, I wouldn't necessarily think it was the end of the world if a majority voted for some form of unification. But I think that there's a a really big need for the parties, uh, both North and in the Republic, who want there to be a border poll and want there to be some form of unified Ireland to um, be receptive to the fears of um, the unionist community about that. Um, There's got to be a a much deeper understanding of why people are attached to their unionist identity and um, why they why there is an element of people and they are also represented in my book who say they will never accept a united Ireland 
you know, that they, they never will even even contemplate it. Um, so that, that's got to be dealt with in um, a generous-hearted way because the Republic is going to have to change a lot to accommodate um, the Unionists of the North in the event of a United Ireland. It's going to have to change enormously and it's going to have to... It's going, that's not going to be necessarily entirely comfortable for a lot of people and they're going to have to deal with um, the anger of unionists coming into a united country that didn't want to. Um, they're going to have to, to yield on a lot of issues that they, they probably feel they've never, they don't have to be yielding about. So it's not just a question for the North, it's a question for um, the Republic and it's a question within the North, not just for unionists, but also for nationalists and republicans to consider you know, it's no good people just saying, well, we've had to put up with being in the North when we didn't want to be here. Um, you know, we saw how that worked out. There really has to be agreement for whatever way we're going to move on as a country. And um, I think that there's a lot of room for growth in that area. There, there are people who are open to persuasion in different directions and that's a conversation that has to be, you know, you're making your contribution, I think, through these podcasts to that. But um, it needs to be happening in a very, very wide range of, of circles. And I think that, you know, Leo Varadkar beginning to talk about his aspirations towards the United Ireland is actually a healthy thing. And I think that people in other political parties should be doing so as well, so that it isn't seen as a threatening thing. It's seen simply as a political aspiration, which um, is to be worked at by those who want it. Okay. By no means everybody in the North thinks that having um, Fine Gael politicians in the North would be a, a healthy or a <laughs> wholesome thing, but, um, you know, it needs to be talked about. Okay, that's excellent. And I suppose looking at it from the two, I suppose, the two arguments, so... First of all, how do you think, how can unionists sell the union? So I suppose from my own perspective, again, I'm from the South, so I've never lived under the union or anything like that. But I find often the number one argument that's put forward by unionists is the NHS. And I suppose in the context of COVID, healthcare is so important. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think springs to mind that can be a selling point? Especially, I'm sure you would have come across people who would have been very much in favour of the status quo before Brexit, but since Brexit are more open to persuasion? Yeah, I mean, obviously, given that 56% of the population in Northern Ireland uh, voted to remain in the EU, there are people in both communities who were pro-remain. Uh, and obviously, there will be an element of those people who now feel that the best way forward is to rejoin the EU via joining the Republic of Ireland. They may not be people who are particularly dedicated to the notion of, of uh, a united Ireland in that sense, but they think it's the better way of being part of the European Union. Um, in terms of um, Britishness, you know, I think people from an Irish identity in the Republic need to understand that people, a lot of people in the North just have a very strong sense of being British in the same way that a lot of people in the North have a very strong sense of being Irish. And um, it isn't, you can't just pin it down to, you know, if we sorted out certain issues, then it would all be fine, you know, but 
we do have a model within the Good Friday Agreement for this in that, you know, you've got people who have been enabled to call themselves Irish, to be Irish within Northern Ireland, even though it constitutionally has remained part of the United Kingdom. So I don't see why there cannot be understandings reached about those kind of issues within uh, an Ireland which is in some way unified. And I don't like using the term United Ireland because it, it sounds too much like something which was seen as being profoundly threatening by Northern Protestants during the time when it was the aspiration of Sinn Féin when the IRA was active. So um, I think we need to start looking at it in in um, terms of more, more inclusive language, probably. But yeah, the NHS is a huge issue. And, you know, the biggest thing that, that politicians in the Republic could do is to um, push for... Um, a version of the NHS in the Republic, which we should have anyway in the Republic. You know, it is absolutely absurd that people are having to pay in the way that they are for basic health care. That said, it is extraordinary the dedication that people in the North, the loyalty that people have in the North to the NHS when it is absolutely on its knees. The health service is really broken in the North and you know, people are people are paying for operations in the north in the same way that they are in the republic, um, simply because they cannot wait. You know, something like a quarter of the people in the north are on waiting lists, and some of those waiting lists are extremely long, and um, you know, many many years long, and um, that obviously is not uh, something that that is sustainable. And it was, in fact, the number one item on the New Decade New Deal approach that uh, came in with the um, new executive in the North in 2019-2020 was, you know, getting the health service up and running. And then, of course, the pandemic came along and derailed that. But it's now being talked about as the priority issue again. But it, it should be the priority issue, I think, in the Republic so that we have, we can so that the Republic can sort of say, well, look, you're not going to lose your free health service. There's going to be a free, there is a free health service here as well. But, you know, there are, it isn't just a case of issues. It is a a case of just a very strong sense of Britishness that many people have and that they will want to hold on to. Okay. And I suppose just uh, on the NHS we saw there is, of course, a famous bus uh, used during the Brexit campaign and how the NHS was placed so centrally within that debate. Within the interviews you did, how has the views of Northern Protestants towards Britain itself actually changed? So just this week, the arch-Brexiteer Julia Hartley-Brewer of Talk Radio spoke about how throwing Northern Ireland under the bus was a price worth paying for Brexit for Britain's Brexit. So has the view of the people you interviewed towards the island of Britain and Northern Ireland's place in the Union, has that changed over time? Um, There's a strange uh, culture of grievance within um, Northern Unionism, which is perfectly capable of maintaining a loyalty to Britain while also saying they've thrown us under the bus, they've sold us out. I mean, everybody can see that they made, the DUP made a terrible mistake 
in uh, backing Boris Johnson and uh, you know believing him when he said that he would never put a border in the Irish Sea. And an awful lot of people said to me, you know, that the DUP made a big mistake when it had such power and influence in not backing Theresa May's Brexit, which potentially could have been quite advantageous to Northern Ireland in certain ways. Um, but yeah, people people are keenly aware that Boris Johnson sold out um, uh, the DUP. But there was a poll done before Brexit which showed that um, English nationalists would, who members of the Tory party, would vote for um, Brexit even if it meant sacrificing both Northern Ireland and Scotland from the Union. So it is primarily a British nationalist project. An English nationalist project, I should say. Um, but you mentioned the, the Brexit bus and the promises that were made about the amount of money that was going to be uh, provided for the NHS um, once there were no longer tariffs to be paid to the EU. And of course, that turned out to be total lies. Um, and the NHS has not had a boost of, of funds in that way. Okay. And I suppose just on that, you mentioned uh English nationalists and the connection with Scotland. Did you find, uh, of course, just as there could be change in Ireland, there could be a shift in Scotland also. Did that element come up in any way in terms of if the connections between Scotland and Northern Ireland, if Scotland left the Union, that that could also make uh, interview people you spoke to perhaps change their minds as well? Well, it's very unsettling to people in Northern Ireland, the idea that Scotland could go independent, because there is a very strong connection between Northern Ireland and Scotland. And if you go up to the North Coast on a fine day, you can see, you know, the buildings and the, the fences and the, you know, the colours of the heather on the Scottish mountains, you know. Northern Ireland and Scotland are very physically, geographically close um, the ferry crossing from um, Scotland to, to Belfast, you're, you're hardly out at sea when you're seeing the coast of Northern Ireland very, very clearly. It's a, it's a crossing which can be done now in a couple of hours. Um, so there's a very strong connection there. An awful lot of Northern Irish people have um, gone to work in Scotland, have gone to college in Scotland. Um, so... It is unsettling, the idea that Scotland could go independent. But it also, you know, we recently heard the First Minister of Wales talking about how, you know, he felt that the union was breaking up. So I think that the DUP is not talking about that. It's not talking about, you know, where are we going to be with our loyalism if it's just us and the English and the English have made it clear that they don't care, they don't want us. You know, that is that is going to leave... Um, Unionists in Northern Ireland in a very lonely spot, you know, having utterly rejected the notion of, of unity with their neighbours in the Irish Republic, then being sort of hung out to dry by the British government. Um, but these are things that would be better spoken about than not spoken about, and the DUP isn't talking about them. And that's one of the things that um, a woman I find very, very interesting politically in Northern Ireland is Dawn Purvis who was for a time the uh, leader of the Progressive Unionist Party, a party which has very much diminished uh, since then. But um, she talks about that, you know, what's going to become of, of these people who have a keen sense that their identity is being stolen from them, but they don't really know what that identity is. You know, is it British? Is it Northern Irish? Um, 
what is it? What is it? What's going to happen to it? And she talked about how um, she had she remembered around the time of the St Andrews Agreement, when up until that point the DUP had been militantly saying that it would never subscribe to the Good Friday Agreement, and she started to say to people in loyalist communities, you know, uh, Ian Paisley is going to do a deal. He's going to do a deal. He's going to go into government with Sinn Féin. And the people were sort of saying, no, 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 he'll not, he'll not sell us out. And then people felt really shocked uh, when that happened, you know, because the Good Friday Agreement isn't hugely different from um, the St Andrews Agreement, which uh, the DUP signed up to. So if only unionism would, would promote conversation among its people about these issues, I think that it would make everything much less threatening and much less frightening. Okay, so I think um, we've been speaking almost for an hour now and it's been excellent to hear the variety of topics that have come up within your new book. So I suppose one final question, thinking about the title of this podcast, Shared Ireland, what do you think is needed to create that shared Ireland where people, as you mentioned there, who are of immense pride within their Britishness, that they can feel as much a part of this island as someone from Skerries or any other part of the south of Ireland? Uh, well, I think, as I've said, really what's needed is a lot more conversation and conversation which is held in a non-threatening way and conversation which steers clear of militaristic sort of language. Um, there's a lot of, of throwing about of, um, you know, sort of words that are quite warlike, you know, talking of enemies and foes and, you know, weapon weapons and, you know, using language in a way that evokes horrible shudders in anybody that lived through the, the conflict. Um, so I think having conversations which are respectful is the key to moving forward. But um, I think that people really need to take seriously the fact that a lot of, of people in Northern Ireland really do want to remain within the Union and um, they need to be asked a lot more about why that is and what it is that's there and find ways in which, you know, are there ways in which Ireland can be shared in a way that will not destroy those people's sense of, of their identity and, and their history? Because because there obviously can be, you know, there are, there are countries in which people with different identities have come to live peacefully side by side and we appeared to be on course for that for a time with the Good Friday Agreement and then Brexit came along and um, really did a huge amount of damage to that. Okay, well, I suppose on that point, uh, we'll leave this conversation. So thank you, Susan, for taking the time out of your evening to speak with us here on Shared Ireland. It's been excellent getting to hear uh, about your book and about the, I suppose, the vast range, as you mentioned earlier on, the, di the diversity within uh, the Protestant community in Northern Ireland. So uh, I look forward to reading your book, as I'm sure many of our listeners do as well. And I wish you the very best of luck in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you as well to all of our listeners, as usual, uh, for your continued support of the Shared Ireland podcast. Um, many thanks and good night. Thank you.